In our last lecture, we looked at government-private enterprise relationships. In this lecture, we turn our attention to government-NGO relationship. NGOs are civil society organizations who will act as a third sector between the public and private sector. They are basically an independent sector from the state, but this does not mean there cannot be other types of NGOs who are part of a Chinese corporate state environment. In this situation, the state is intimately linked with NGOs to the extent that they are government-organized, non-governmental organizations, or gongos for short. They can intervene at the international level in areas governments generally cannot. NGOs can reach disadvantaged sectors or monitor and enforce agreements where states do not have the resources to do so. NGOs can form a large part of the global civil society that is a thick social space of civil interaction. They are networks of organizations and citizens come together to affect normative change. NGOs can also be seen as epistemic communities, a network of professionals with recognized expertise and competence in a particular domain and an authoritative claim to policy relevant knowledge within that domain. They share a set of normative and principled beliefs, a shared notion of validity, and shared common policy enterprise. In order to understand the activities of NGOs in the Chinese context, it's worthwhile for us to go back to some of the basics to understand NGO sources of power, their main functions, and the dilemmas that they face, and then we can turn our attention to how they operationalize in the Chinese context. Foremost, NGO sources of power can be seen as having material power, symbolic power, interpretive power, geographical power, and political standpoints. Material power can be understood as the size and budget that an NGO has, an ability to acquire more resources. When we look at symbolic power, it's the ability to have legitimacy in their statements. Now, of course, this may be dependent on material power that the NGO has. NGOs have interpretive power, an ability to bring expertise to the forum and interpret social facts and experiences for a larger audience. Interpretive communities are the location where meaning is created and asserted in relation to a set of facts. NGOs have symbolic capital amongst publics having their ideas acknowledged. NGOs also have geographical power. They have local, state, regional, or international power. Finally, NGOs has a particular source of power by virtue of their political standpoint a particular value set and beliefs that is ascribed to that NGO. So for instance, if we look at Amnesty International, we can say that's an NGO that is more rights-based oriented, has a particular political standpoint, so to speak. When we look at the main functions of a general NGO, they, they are able to set the agenda, they're able to affect negotiations, they're able to confer legitimacy, and they're able to make solutions and agreements work. Foremost, by setting the agenda, what, what is meant here is that they're able to put issues on the table. They can apply pressure on political leadership, they can potentially lobby, they can use the press to raise awareness, they can mobilize public opinion. NGOs can also affect negotiations by assisting in the creation of agreements. Their epistemic understanding allows them to provide specialized information. NGOs can furthermore uh, confer legitimacy they can take opinions with the public and add legitimacy in the stance that they take. Finally, NGOs can make solutions and agreements work. 
They can do so by implementing the decisions and acting as a monitoring agency. Finally, before we turn our attention to how Chinese NGOs operationalize, it's worthwhile understanding the inherent dilemmas that NGOs might face. They often have an issue maintaining the ideals of innovation and progress. There's often issues of democratic accountability. There are questions of their scale and efficiency. There's political naivete and social responsibility. They can potentially undermine national and multilateral channels. And the quality of advice offered by advocacy groups can sometimes be suspect. I want you to think about these dilemmas as we talk about the Chinese context and notably the sort of interactions between the state and the NGO in the Chinese context. NGOs in China have increased ostensibly since the 1978 market reforms. There are approximately half a million registered organizations across China, a figure that can increase up to tenfold once unregistered organizations are factored in. Suffice it to say, the spectrum of organizations are diverse amongst NGOs, ranging from community development to HIV AIDS groups. NGOs have come to offer a range of services and support for many different and often marginalized groups in Chinese society. In effect, they have the capacity to be alternate social and welfare providers and have generally proven to be effective at this task when they are provided with the space to operate. In this backdrop, the local state has experienced a strain on its finances, which has consequently reduced its ability to deliver social services to its constituents. The restructuring of state-owned enterprises, a shedding of social welfare responsibilities, and fiscal decentralization have all contributed to an increasing financial burden on cash-strapped local state authorities in terms of providing social welfare provisions, so for example in the realms of health, education, and old age security. This of course begs the question, why do we witness low levels of voluntary collaboration between the local state and NGOs in China? It seems that greater collaboration between the local state and NGOs would be advantageous for both parties. It would simultaneously alleviate the local state's burden to address a number of social welfare concerns. And it allows NGOs that potentially have the resources and capacity to tackle such issues to execute their respective mandates. However, the reality on the ground shows that this kind of collaboration between the local state and NGOs in China has been rather minimal. The corpus of literature on Chinese NGOs can be divided into two camps that attempt to explain this paradox. That is, why do we witness low levels of voluntary collaboration between the state and NGOs? The first explanation for low levels of collaboration is attributed to the domination and strength of the central state. The central state effectively seeks to control the NGO sector through restrictive regulations and to partner with it. Whether overtly or not, the majority of the literature has framed this argument by utilizing an underlying notion of a strong central state that seeks to manage and control the NGO sector. The second line of explanations can be attributed to organizational differences between the two sectors. The major premise here is that the organizational forms and goals of both sectors are divergent. And as such, it dissuades the building of mutual trust or the potential of a credible catalyst to incentivize one or both parties to cooperate towards a common goal. While we are not here to really question the validity of other camps, 
Neither one fully answers why local state authorities continue to resist the advantages of utilizing Chinese NGOs. That is, despite the opportunities that Chinese NGOs present in collaborative efforts, even where state constraints exist. While the central state is an active force in the development of the NGO sector, and it's been demonstrated in the various kinds of rules and regulations that's been issued by the Ministry of Civil, of, of Ministry of Civil Affairs, rather, it is at the level of the local state where the majority of meaningful interactions occur between the local state and NGOs. Perhaps given that NGOs are relatively new to the social landscape in China, it is very plausible to suggest that the Chinese NGO sector has not matured sufficiently to become part of an epistemic community in which knowledge or expertise can be used as reference points by the local state. Moreover, if the argument is that NGOs are organizationally different or distinct from the local state, one will posit that the majority of NGOs would eventually succumb to coercive isomorphic pressures due to the regulatory environment. Or mimetic isomorphic pressures due to uncertainty in the social space to effectively operate. Or perhaps normative isomorphic pressures that would eventually arise from the generalization of attitudes and approaches to the professionalization of NGOs. Intertwined with the idea of, the, of this concept of isomorphic pressures is the notion of power. NGOs generally possess four inherent types of power, as we discussed, the material power, the symbolic power, the interpretive power, the geographical power. And in, in this sort of reality, we can seek to understand local state NGO interactions through analysis of the strategies and methods that are utilized to establish collaboration. In addition, we can probe into the interactive role that fierce isomorphic pressures and epistemic awareness plays in determining whether or not NGOs collaborate and to what extent they collaborate with the local state and vice versa. In the last slide, I discussed this idea of isomorphic theory, so it might be worthwhile for us to unpack it a bit more. The strength of isomorphic pressures for NGOs is contingent upon the environment in which they operate. According to new institutional theory, organizations that occupied a shared sector would eventually begin to copy one another due to coercive, mimetic, and normative pressures. Coercive isomorphism stems from political influence and the problem of legitimacy. Mimetic isomorphism results from standard responses to uncertainty. Normative isomorphism is associated with professionalization. But differently, in the Chinese context, coercive pressures can be attributed to state regulations and an NGO's overdependence on, on donors. Mimetic isomorphism has a tendency to occur in an uncertain environment where organizations will begin to copy successful models as a mechanism for coping with changeable conditions. By copying, NGOs are able to quickly establish legitimacy without having to build a repertoire of practices which can be time-consuming without necessarily leading to any tangible outcomes. This is particularly the case in China where the environment for NGOs can oscillate depending on state behavior. Finally, normative isomorphism emerges when certain attitudes and approaches lead to the professionalization of NGOs. Normative pressures to professionalize can lead to greater homogeneity of the NGO sector, but not necessarily to greater efficiency. 
The strength in utilizing new institutional theory to understand NGO behavior lies in the fact that it is able to explain why organizations adopt certain practices in environments where they have little influence to reject their practices. Chinese NGOs operate in a relatively singular institutional environment, whereby competing logics do not cause contestation, and thus much variation in institutional designs. Organizational change with regards to NGOs in China is particularly dependent on the political environment and the power of institutional actors in their support or opposition to change. This political aspect is one that is readily acknowledged by neo-institutionalists. Notwithstanding the increasing quantity and diversity of the NGO sector in China, coercive isomorphic pressures are prevalent due to the existing regulatory environment that manages NGOs. Officially, all NGOs are required to be registered with the Ministry of Civil Affairs. What this suggests is that this is a strong coercive pressure uh, incumbent upon the NGO. The excessive regulatory environment for NGOs in China contributes to maintaining social stability by keeping out those organizations that the state perceives as a threat and minimizes the size and strength of the NGO sector which may in turn limit NGOs' collaborative efforts with the local state. Suffice it to say, efforts to launch collaborative projects between the local state and NGOs can be limited. Although, as we've talked about, collaboration offers both parties, the state and the NGO, an opportunity to pool material, symbolic, interpretive, and geographical resources, the local state rarely engages in voluntary collaborative efforts except when the local state is familiar and knowledgeable of a specific individual NGO project. I'll give you an example of this. In the case of Beijing NGOs, such as Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center, facilitators, or the Shining Stone Community Action, who have been established since the early 2000s, we've seen that they've all maintained collaborative projects with the Beijing's local state, rather than an on-again, off-again situation which often characterizes the local state NGO's experience. For these NGOs, one main method of sustaining contact and collaboration with the local state is to mobilize their material power and market their services to the city. Whether or not this strategy translates to projecting an increased level of mimetic isomorphic pressures is another narrative. The evidence suggests that NGOs who have copied a successful model to market their services have done so without awareness of each other's tactics. Granted, going back to traditional new institutional theory, the model organization may be unaware of the potential mimetic activity in this respect, or the models of success may be diffused unintentionally through employee transfer or turnover or via trade associations. This is not necessarily a possibility that we can entertain in the Chinese context. For the most part, most NGOs do not have direct awareness of each other's work and have self-reported little to no awareness of other NGOs' activities. They are working in completely different sectors of operation, and hence they have little chance of unintentional contact that may lead to copying tactics. And furthermore, they rarely experience employee transfers between NGOs. Potentially, uncertainties in the institutional environment and their relationships with the local government have led them to develop an independently derived, pragmatic approach to marketing their material power and the utility of using their services to local authorities. 
Interestingly, this tactic becomes difficult to execute given that local government often have not achieved sufficient epistemic awareness of NGOs' potential capacity. Even when epistemic awareness has been achieved by the local state, some NGOs have experienced competition with local authorities in delivering their services. According to many NGOs interviewed in Shanghai, they explain that this is not unusual for the government to steal the ideas and programs of small successful NGOs. As illustration, there's an example of a small successful NGO in Shanghai that sold goods over the internet for charities. And it's facing now competition from a new government organized NGO. The Gongo has benefited from government backing and contacts, and as a result has managed to secure the financial support from large organizations. The idea here is that there's a poaching of ideas that makes it detrimental for smaller NGOs, and they're unable to compete with larger NGOs and gongos with greater material and geographical power. Competition from the local state is one obstacle that NGOs have to contend with, but the threat of absorption is another hazard. In the early years, for example, another NGO in Beijing suggested it had to stave off government attempts to co-opt and absorb its NGO into existing government structures. This, this particular NGO had been approached by local officials to become part of the government branch, like a gongo, which they refused. The NGO managed to maintain its independence, and perhaps it's due to its previous experience of being subjected to co-optation that the representatives now emphasize that they don't normally collaborate with local authorities, but rather they work beside them. Some NGOs, however, are not as fortunate to ward off incorporation by the state. Representatives recall the experiences of the free lunch program that had been created by a particular journalist. The free lunch program operated via the internet platform and was able to solicit substantial donations from the public to provide free lunch to needy school children across the nation. This success attracted the attention of the state and according to representatives, um, effectively the state brought this program into the fold of the government and turned it into a government program. Small and potentially successful NGOs are vulnerable to government incorporation. Nevertheless, not all NGOs are so pessimistic with regards to the state. In rare instances, NGOs can be seen as a vehicle for state authorities to project certain images or messages to both domestic and international audiences. When the state requires their message to be broadcasted and taken seriously by the international media, for example, some NGOs can provide a voice for the state to achieve this aim or in effect tap into the symbolic power of the NGO. Consequently, local NGOs have lent legitimacy to the state when the situation demands it. The state's interactions with international media and NGOs have proven beneficial for smaller NGOs, which have been able to actually provide greater funding from larger foundations. Here we see the institutional environment changing for NGOs due to the involvement of the international community, to which the government has little recourse but to respond. It is through the government's response that we see space opening up for local NGOs to conduct their projects. The international environment is constantly evolving, and we see that NGOs both benefit from and face risks of government incorporation. In the case of a changing institutional environment, Interactions with government do not occur through the actions of NGOs, 
but as a result of external forces and the state proactively identifying certain NGOs on the path to success. We see this is the case in, amongst Chinese NGOs that their coercive isomorphism is, is quite dominant. However, we also witness mimetic isomorphism, where NGOs have adopted similar organizational functions to establish legitimacy. While those of the NGO may fear having their ideas stolen, it's interesting to note that even government-backed NGOs require legitimacy beyond state support. Nevertheless, it would appear that coercive and mimetic isomorphism occurs almost in tandem with each other in the context of China. Interestingly enough, NGOs that have reported difficulties in establishing collaborative opportunities have portrayed local state authorities as lacking in trust and knowledge of the sector. Less than half of the NGOs interviewed in some studies believe that knowledge levels of the local authorities have improved with regards to the NGO sector. Whereas more than half of the interviewees suggest that the knowledge levels and trust for NGOs are still very low. The interview narrative suggests that greater state collaboration and epistemic awareness of NGOs by the local state will be achieved through the professionalization of NGOs. This is a heuristic sort of variable that signals normative isomorphic change. Professionalization in the context of this lecture essentially refers to having established a respected organizational identity alongside a continuation and expansion of service provisions to relevant constituents. Seemingly normative pressures to homogenize come from the similar attitudes and approaches through the process of professionalization. From another standpoint, given that many NGOs lack geographical power and financial resources, to sustain the sort of momentum on projects they're engaged with may prove a challenge in the interim. What is interesting to observe as well is that the number of NGOs representatives equate service provision and the added value of an NGO as a determined factor to potential collaboration with the local state. There is a sentiment that on the local level, the government needs to see the added value of an NGO, or otherwise it would not engage in partnership with the NGO. It also appears that the NGOs that have evolved from small localized NGOs to citywide or even provincial-wide service providers have done so through a process of sustained organizational momentum and perseverance, despite oscillating sort of negative political climate towards NGOs. Such persistence has engineered not only trust between the NGOs and local authorities, but also a high degree of epistemic awareness of the NGO in question. Such strategies for improving the knowledge of local authorities of the NGO sector and building trust have indeed improved in the potential for collaborative relationships between the local state and NGOs. A number of NGOs have further suggested that trust is no longer a major barrier to collaboration. Rather, they say it's a matter of perspective that plays a stronger role. For some NGOs, local state authorities do not necessarily lack trust of NGOs, they just have a different perspective of the situation. And this is not a moot point. If local authorities increase their epistemic awareness of NGOs' perspectives and vice versa, NGOs are able to increase their epistemic capacity greater, and greater collaboration between both parties will occur. This lecture has suggested that the local state lacks meaningful knowledge of the NGO sector 
just as NGOs have not sufficiently matured to become part of an epistemic community. Given that NGOs are relatively new to the social landscape in China, the suggestion is that the NGO sector has not developed sufficiently to become part of a mature epistemic community in which their expertise or interpretive powers can be used as a reference point by the state. In time, however, it is plausible that NGOs in China may become part of a mature community of experts, where they can effectively harness not only their material power, but also their symbolic, interpretive, and geographical powers. There are, however, a few reservations in this regard. We can prognosticate that it's not simply a matter of time before Chinese NGOs mature into an epistemic community. Rather, the, given the strength of the Chinese state and the existence of strong coercive isomorphic pressures, any production of knowledge outside of the state arena may challenge the legitimacy of the Chinese party state, and therefore it might become intolerable and ultimately hinder the development of NGOs. In effect, the existence of such structural inertia that is rooted in the party-state system and regulatory frameworks makes it undeniable that the Chinese state is going to dominate state-NGO relationships. This means that NGOs need to stay one step ahead of the state in order to survive and to prosper. To do so, NGOs need to produce new knowledge and more importantly, anticipate surprises or discover the unknown. While the institutional environment in which NGOs are operating is slowly changing, thereby allowing greater participation of NGOs to address a number of social issues, the majority of the NGOs that were interviewed still perceive the state as having limited meaningful knowledge of the sector. Moreover, even if epistemic awareness is achieved, it is quite plausible that the state will develop a strategy of strategic ignorance to vary its degree of acknowledgement of an NGO depending on a pragmatic calculus that is based on the NGO's resources for social and welfare considerations. In essence, by factoring whether NGOs can utilize its material power rather than symbolic, interpretive, and geographical powers to supplement the local state social and welfare provisions. In a meta sense, the pressure to acknowledge and engage with both domestic and international NGOs will rise as China becomes increasingly integrated into the global system. Unless we continue to assess how local authorities engage with the proliferation of NGOs, any analysis of China as a global, social, political, and economic force will be incomplete. This lecture has suggested that focusing at the local level is clearly needed given the increasing heterogeneity of local governing structures that has been occurring since economic reforms. Thus, comprehending why there's a dearth of collaboration between NGOs and local state authorities allows us to codify and catalog such interactions. It would ultimately enhance the measure of predictability in our assessment of future local state NGO relations in the context of China. This concludes our lecture on government NGO relationship. In our next lecture, we'll turn our attention to popular legitimacy and accountability.